Good morning and welcome to High Point Church Online. My name is Andy, I'm the lead pastor here. It's a joy to be worshiping with you as always, wherever you're streaming from, thankful to be here with you. And if this is your, is your first time, we are so glad that you are here. Uh, we're starting a brand new teaching series called Brave. And if you have a little bit of courage this morning and you're new watching, we want to even take encourage you to take a minute and write something in the chat, right? Let us know that you're here. And that does require a measure of bravery. Make no mistake about it. Um, we all need bravery in different shapes and different sizes. And this is why we're starting this series. Some people need bravery to pray out loud in front of other people, right? It requires a summoning of courage. They've never done that before. Some people need bravery to get in their car and drive to a church service because it's intimidating and it's nerve-wracking. And, and then, you know, you come to a church like ours and we, we talk about life groups and small groups and, and, and it requires bravery to go to a place where you don't know anybody, right? Where maybe you're new to faith and you're intimidated and you're thinking, oh my gosh, people are going to see that I don't know anything. Well, well, even though that isn't true, it still requires you being brave. Then there's the conflict that exists in your life, and everybody has it, right? Conflict management and stepping in and having the hard conversations. Do you know what that requires? Bravery. It requires being brave or choosing to have faith, to believe for something to continue working out. That requires courage. It requires you being brave. We all need bravery in different shapes and sizes. But what about culturally speaking? What about as a people, as the, if you've put your faith in Jesus, then you're a part of the body of Christ, the Bible says. And what does it look like for the people of God, not just you, but the people of God to be brave, especially when you are living in a world or a country or a community that doesn't share the same values as you do, that doesn't look at God the same way that you do, that doesn't believe like you or live like you or do anything like you? What does it then look like for you to bravely live for God? Many of us have seen in recent years just angry responses, culturally speaking, as people have felt disoriented and they're not sure how to live, and specifically even for Christians, trying to sort out how to live for God in a world that doesn't believe the same way as they do. Well, is anger just the right response? I don't think that it actually is. So what does it then look like for us to be a people, for you? to be a family, for you to be a person who lives boldly and bravely for God. So glad you asked that question today. Turn to the book of Daniel. And as you turn there, uh, I will encourage you, uh, this sermon series has been inspired by a book written by Alistair Begg, who's a pastor here in North America. And the book is called Brave, and you can download it, read it on Kindle. You can download a hard copy off of Amazon. Uh, much of what I'll be preaching and teaching has been inspired by this book. Just wanted to let you know, now you do. Turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 1, and we're going to read the next seven verses together as we look at a, at a, at a, at a people, a group of men, who have to make some difficult decisions on how to live bravely. For God. Here we are, Daniel chapter 1, 
Verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. So he attacked it, destroyed it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. That's important to catch right there. The articles from the temple of God, they're taken. He carried off uh, these articles to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put the, in the treasure house and put it in the treasure house of his God. So he took what was in in the Israel's temple, removes it and puts it in a temple of his God and his making. Okay. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And they were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. It's a lot. I'm aware that's a that's a that's a lot to read and digest. So let's rewind the tape and make sure that we understand what exactly is happening here. We have we have God's people, Jewish people. They're 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 Judah right now, Northern Kingdom. They are um, attacked by King Nebuchadnezzar. The city is besieged. It's destroyed. The temple of God is destroyed. Which, in case you don't, maybe you don't realize or don't know, that is a huge deal. And that which they used to represent God's glory, the things that they used for worship, those things are taken out of the temple and they're taken back to Babylon and they're put in Nebuchadnezzar's temple. And so you have a Jewish people whose king has now been deported. You have a people that have been deported. So many times uh, in situations like this, the, the poorest of the poor would be left behind in a city that's been ransacked. And you would take you know, the, the middle class and you would definitely take the upper class and you would remove them. They would be completely disoriented. They wouldn't know where they are. They wouldn't know what they're doing. They're in a land with different food, different language, different worship. And they're brought into Babylon along with their deported king, the deported articles from the temple, and they're being forced to learn a new language, like I said, eat new food, and exist, assimilate into a culture that is not their own. Now, for all my sci-fi, you know, kind of nerds out there, you know, maybe you were into Star Trek. And, well, one of the enemies of Star Trek was the Borg. Okay, in the Borg, what would they do? They'd go from civilization to civilization, and they wouldn't just conquer it, they would assimilate it into their own, right? So they would absorb it, right? And that's what's happening here. But when you read the Bible, sometimes we, we have a tendency to remove the Bible from like real world events or just real world life and practice. 
What's happening here in Daniel, this is, this is, this is historical wartime strategy. This is not unique to the Bible. This is exactly what you would do as a conquering and invading army. If you won, these are the common practices of the time that you would use on, on your enemy that you've subjugated. You would deport them and you would begin to teach them a new way of life because it's disorienting and it allows you to assimilate those people into your own. This is common practice. It is wartime strategy. Here's what, in short then, here's what you do. You relocate, you re-educate, and you rename. We see the people of God relocated literally physically. We see them re-educated and that they're, they're being taught and forced to learn a new language. And then they're literally given new names. Relocate, re-educate, and rename. And this is war time strategy. It's in the Bible, but it's not unique to the Bible. It, is, it exists historically throughout literally our world's history. Let's park on that for one second, because I'm going to introduce a different conversation here that's going to seemingly have nothing to do with what we just talked about. But we're going to bring them together in such a way that makes sense. So at High Point, this is High Point Online, if you're just tuning in, welcome. Uh, at High Point, we believe that God is real. Surprise, um, we believe that God is real, right? This is our online church service. But we also believe that the devil is real. And we believe that the devil has schemes like the Bible teaches, that the devil has plans that he has put into play. And his ultimate plan is, is for people to not have relationship with God, to not be saved by his grace, to, in, to experience hell. But we also believe that Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, that he's victorious over Satan, over the devil and his plans, that he defeated him on the cross when he died for the sins of the world, showing that he was stronger than death. And he rose victorious, literally over sin and death. And he proved it when he stepped out of the tomb three days later. But just because the ultimate plan of Satan has been foiled doesn't mean that he doesn't have tricks up his sleeve. It doesn't mean that there aren't still the effects of sin and brokenness being felt in our world. It doesn't mean that there aren't still schemes used to bring about discouragement and separation and division and depression and all the things. Look around. We're literally, globally right now, there is a war happening in the physical, right? And we can all recognize this isn't good. There's poverty. There's disease and sickness, right? We, we see people filled with anger and rage and there's death and senseless murder. We see these things. We, 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 we encounter these things. And when you come up against them, when you read about them, when you see them in the news, when you have conversations, there's something instinctive inside of you that says, this is not as it should be. Right? We, we, we know this. As people who, the Bible says, have been made in the image of God, when you come into contact with something that is not the image of God, you instinctively recognize right and wrong. Yeah, there are things 
There are, there are aspects of right and wrong that maybe you, you, you learn from mom and dad or, or, or from a mentor, from reading the Bible. But instinctively to humanity, as people made in the image of God, there is a, there is a hardwiring to recognize right and wrong. Hope that makes sense today. And that being said, when we, when we speak about things that you encounter in the, in the present, like that you can literally taste and feel, right? And you recognize this is wrong. There are also things that you don't recognize and that you don't see that are happening behind kind of closed doors. Paul, the greatest apostle in the New Testament, he writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, meaning it's not this actual thing that you can feel and taste and see. It's not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, meaning that there is a fight happening. There are battles happening that you don't see, and they're happening around you. This is a spiritual fight, a spiritual battle. Uh, Peter, right, one of the apostles, he writes in uh, 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Well, how does the devil do this? When we talk about spiritual battles that are taking place, is there anything we can be aware of? Anything we need to know? Is there anything we can understand? And the answer is yes. And if we, by the way, understand this, it will actually help equip us to live more bravely in a world that doesn't look like you. That might be working to oppress, maybe even persecute you for what you believe. Understand this. The Bible promises, Jesus promised you and me, if you put your faith in him and you're choosing to live for him, you are promised some amazing things, blessings in Jesus. But you're also promised to be persecuted for what you believe and who you are, your identity in Jesus. So, so how does this devil who's ro- ro- roaming around like a lion... What is he doing? What is his strategy? Well, it's actually the same sense and the same strategy that we see happening in the book of Daniel. Satan isn't coming out with a new bag of tricks. He aims to disorient you and me and the people of God in the same way that a real battle takes place in real-time war. What does that look like? Relocating, re-educating, and renaming disorienting you. So let's talk about it for just a second. How does our enemy relocate us? Because no one is being actually spiritually transported out of their city or their community and put in another one right now. That's not happening. But just, we can laugh about this for for just a second. I was talking to my, my oldest even this morning as I was working on this message, laughing about how different things are, right? I mean, I grew up every Friday, not every Friday, but many Fridays, you'd go to Blockbuster, right? It doesn't even exist anymore, right? The place you'd go with your teen friends, Steak and Shake. Please, nobody goes to Steak and Shake anymore. Love you, Steak and Shake, but sorry, it's not the same. What happened? We don't know, right? What happened to the Frisco melt? Nobody knows, right? It used to be amazing. What happened? Come on, somebody, right? The world has, has changed, Has it not? 
I was laughing again with my kids. When I was a kid, I'm 41 years old, okay? When I was in elementary school, my principal had the legal right and authority to spank children in our elementary school. Did I get spanked on more than one occasion? Maybe I did. Maybe I did. Can you fathom that even happening in 2022? No, you cannot. In fact, if it happened, you, I mean, you'd have a suitcase of cash on your front porch saying, please don't sue us, you know? Like, you'd be, you'd be in a lawsuit instantaneously, right? Because the world is different. Now, that's just in the physical. But what happens when culturally your values what you believe on the inside about the world and about God, when those things have changed, when they've shifted, when there's such a sudden shift that, that, that makes you like, uh, it feels like a hard right turn or a hard left turn. Guess what you need to do as a person of faith? This is your moment to slow down and take a step back and look to see if there isn't something more happening behind closed doors, a strategy of the enemy being employed against you, against the people of God to disorient and relocate you. Are you in a, a, an actual different community or a different place? No. But how many times do we say things like, I don't even, I don't get this world that I live in anymore. You ever say something like that or verbiage similar to it or like, man, I just don't understand these people. I don't get this. I don't recognize this place. This isn't how I grew up. This isn't the world that I grew up in. And it's easy in this moment to all of a sudden be like the old crotchety person on the lawn as I get off my lawn. The old days were better. The truth is some things do need to change, right? Progress is a good thing. But when things happen suddenly and fast, and they feel forced even, right? This is a moment to look and say, okay, is there something happening here that's beyond just normative human progress, but a strategy being employed by the enemy to disorient people of faith, to dismantle righteousness as it exists in a civilization? These are important questions to ask. This is how the enemy, the devil, relocates you. It's not a real relocation, but it feels like it because you don't recognize anything around you. Secondly, Satan loves to re-educate you. And, and what I mean by that is in, in the same way that, that, that um, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're, they're, they're uprooted and they're taken as captives along with Thousands upon thousands of other Jews. They're removed from Jerusalem and brought to Babylon. And what is it that, 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 that happens instantaneously is begin, they begin to be taught a new language, a new, a new way of speaking. And in wartime practice, historically speaking, it's not uncommon uh, to see that happen. In fact, it's not uncommon to then see literally the native language of a people who've been deported to, to become outlawed or banned, meaning you're not even allowed to speak it. That happens. That's happened historically. And so here we see the Jewish people, the people of faith, they're being taught a new language. And who is it that is impacted the most by this? The generation coming up. 
young generation. And many times what they're, they're learning some things at home, right? They're hearing a language spoken at home, but everywhere else in their life, they only hear one other thing. And so it gets pounded and reinforced. And so we see a, a new education happening, a re-education of values, a re-education of what is right and wrong. And we see Satan historically doing this once again, Right When you look at the big picture of civilizations and cultures and even what's happening in North America, right? we see this move, this wartime, spiritual wartime strategy being employed. I'll give you an example of how things shifted even as I was a teenager. Right, The biggest show, the biggest two shows were Seinfeld and Friends Right, when I was a teenager. And Friends is, is, it's the biggest show of the two in terms of its global phenom status, right? I mean, still, it's the number one streaming show with teenagers in the UK right now, right? It's wild. Well, in the very first episode of Friends, you have one of the characters, her name is Rachel, right? And she busts into the cafe that everything takes place in Central Perk, right? She, and she's wearing what? Her wedding dress. And she has left her fiance at the altar, the orthodontist named Barry, okay? And right out of the gate, within the first three minutes, what you are getting is a snapshot of what the entire show is going to be about. And that is the departure from domestic family life, domestic marriage, what, what, what at the time we would have considered just a normative American life. And later on in the show, the very same episode, she's sitting at the table and she begins to cut up mom and dad's credit cards, further showing you the separation between the, the, the normative nuclear family and that the people that you can count on the most in your life, it isn't really your family, it's your friends. And so we see this progression taking place. And it was a you know smash hit show and the values of this show are introduced in ways that are funny, that are humorous, that are, that are seemingly innocuous. And you need to know, Amy and I, my wife, Amy, we've watched the show plenty of times, and we find it funny as adults now looking back. But I'm also aware of what this show introduced to a generation of people, a re-educating. You may not know, but living together, right? Living, just living together, men and women as roommates, that wasn't that common practice before the show Friends. That was popularized by this show. The idea of living together before you're married was not common practice. 28 years ago, just 28 years ago when Friends aired, it wasn't that common of practice. Sleeping together before you're married, obviously people did, we know this, but in terms of its celebration, the idea of having a child Right outside of marriage, outside the covenant of marriage, these are all ideas that are that are introduced and also celebrated within the show of Friends. 
The idea of just a, a, a domestic life where you would get married, have a job, and raise kids, this is not the life that's really celebrated. You celebrate with those who you can count on the most, your friends. Pornography, for the first time in a TV show, is celebrated, applauded, and is introduced to you as something to make you feel great if you're ever in need of a fix. Anxious, discouraged, porn will answer your problems. And we know that is, by the way, one of the most demonic ideas introduced to a young generation that has trapped people now for decades. This is how people get re-educated, right? Now, in case you're thinking that I'm bashing just friends or media, no, no, no. We have TVs in our home. We watch shows in our house. We're well aware, right? But it forces us to have conversations where we take a step back and we say, okay, what is being introduced here that's contrary to God's word, that needs to be addressed, that needs to be looked at, where the curtains need to be pulled back? Because make no mistake about it, the enemy is employing wartime spiritual practice against you. Don't be naive. Don't just be swept up in the current of culture, in the current of, uh, 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 of just, this is just life. No, there is an enemy who is scheming against you, and he uses the different mediums available to him to try to bring you down. There are 817,000 available TV shows and movies to stream for you right now. You turn on your TV, you have access to almost a million things. And you wonder why people are <laughs> overwhelmed trying to decide what to watch, right? Oh my gosh, it's like the most overwhelming decision, right? We were laughing about this, and, and but this, is, this data comes from the Nielsen report, by the way. If an American, if, if I were to sit down and if I were to watch cumulatively all the streaming minutes of content that America spent watching in just 2021, meaning if I was going to, 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 I wrote this down a little bit better than how I'm saying it. If one American were to watch all the streamed content viewed in 2021 in the United States, it would take them 15 million years to do it. I would have to sit and watch TV for 15 million years because the average person is watching five hours of content a day. Now, if you want to reshape and you want to inform and you want to re-educate the next generation, do you know how to do it? You use media. That's how you do it. And that's exactly how Satan puts out his plan. That doesn't make media the enemy. And it also doesn't make culture the enemy. He is the enemy. But you need to be aware of what he is doing and how he is doing it. And then lastly, there is the renaming. In the same way that we see Daniel and, uh, being renamed to Belteshazzar, and we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have new names. We see the exact same thing happening in our culture. There is a rush to identify, right? A, to, to slap a name, to slap a, a label on something as quickly as you possibly can. And, and historically, sometimes those names have come from outside voices. But right now, in, in our generation, it's the self-identification. As quickly as you can, you need to, 
as a young person, identify a certain way. And I'm not just talking about gender and talking about sexuality, although certainly that exists as well. But in a world where, where teenagers, people who, whose hormones are going through it, right? Like, let's just be honest. Being a teenager can be tough, right? You don't know what's happening inside you. Your frontal cortex hasn't even fully formed. Your ability, the part of your brain that makes critical decisions isn't even fully formed, okay? And we're putting so much immense pressure. Where's that pressure coming from? How does that, how does that just exist in a culture like oxygen? How does that happen? Where there's so much pressure to make life-defining decisions about who you are. Whether it's gender, whether it's sex, whether it's even your career, might I add. Whether it's sports, you can't even get into a sport without basically signing your life away. What feels like in blood, right, these days. You have to make these massive defining decisions about who you are and your identity therefore gets defined and redefined a certain way. When you're not even in a place to be able to make these kinds of calls. And that's not a slight to young people. That's just life. Wisdom. And yet, this is how Satan moves, right? to try to disorient a people. And as it pertains to sex and sexuality and gender, this is the easiest one for us to point to because there is a generation of people who are deeply confused about what's true, who they are, and how they're supposed to exist and relate to one another. And that's not said with anger or malice, or disgust, or, or anything, but simply with truth and compassion. There is a spiritual agenda by the enemy trying to drive people to identify with something other than what the Word of God says. That's spiritual wartime practice. And it's the same thing we see play out historically in real wartime practice as well. And so we have to be the kind of people who are aware of that and live bravely amidst it. We don't see Daniel in this moment or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego getting angry. We don't see them, you know, flipping tables. You know, we don't see them getting into fights or, or putting together a coup, you know, or a revolution. We're a part of the resistance, you know, and, and, and all these things. No, none of that's happening. We see grace. We see compassion. We see kindness and patience. We see excellent manners, right? We, 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 see, we see people being loved well and God being honored and glorified in the manner in which they live. Look what, look how Daniel responds in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. After all these things that we listed happen, right? And he's deported. He's literally removed from a city. He's taught a new language. He's given a new diet and he's given a new name, for goodness sakes. If there's anybody who's got a little bit of a reason to be mad about something, I feel like it's these guys. 
But instead, he says that the Bible says that Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, Daniel had resolved. He had made a decision. Regardless of what the chief was gonna, the official was going to say, he'd already resolved in his heart, this is, this is my line in the sand. And for you and I reading this, we might be like, this is your line? Like, this is where you choose to pick your battle, right? Well, for a Jew, diet was very much tied to your worship of God and glory that you brought to God. So for them, this has much to do with, with their identity as, as a person, as a man of faith, as someone who's worshiping God. This has a great deal to do with, with how they worship. So it was very deeply important to him. And he had resolved this. I'm just, I can do all these other things but I won't do this. And this was his line. It was his line in the sand. How do you bravely live in a world that doesn't share the same love for God and values as you do? Well, we have to begin to live like Daniel. And that starts with knowing your convictions and choosing to live by them. And you have to know where your line is. So where's your line? What are your convictions? Do you have any convictions? And if you have none, then I have news for you that you are probably being swept along with just the values of the day and the values of culture. And guess what? If you've put your faith in Jesus, you are called to live holy, set apart. That means that you are called to be different. And there is, no, there is no line in terms of, of, you know, you get to decide what's right and wrong, and I decide what's right and wrong. No, right and wrong is right and wrong. The Bible makes that clear, which is why we need to be men and women rooted in the Scriptures. We need to know what's true, and we need to know what's right. But there are also things that you've got to flesh out that are going to be unique to you, unique to your family, unique to your home. And we call those things convictions. And right here, Daniel and his friends are modeling to us what it looks like for them to say, this is where I cross, I won't cross this line. I won't go across it, this and no more. Oh, I've learned how to talk your language. I realize you've put this identity on me, even though more than that, I'm a man of God. That's who I really am. But you can call me what you want. That, that's fine. I can learn to talk this way. I, I, I realize I'm going to feel disoriented because I am different. It's a little weird to live this way in a land that doesn't share the same values as me. But I'm not going to do this. That line I can't cross. You know your convictions. And you live by them. Everybody has to sort through this. And it's not always easy. But I'll, I'll give you some examples of how this has played out in my own life. Right? With my home. With my family. Where we have convictions. And these convictions are rooted in how we worship God as a family. But also... Rooted in what we want to see produced in our home. My marriage, with my kids, with me, my life, my own heart. So like in our house, for instance, and we have four kids, 
right? But we have a conviction about media in our house. And you're going to see, because this is an easy thing to describe, you'll see a lot of the convictions that I use as examples are media related. But we don't, our children do not have unrestricted access to the internet or to YouTube. Mainly because we realize it's one of the main ways that this generation is shaped. And the person and people who are going to shape this home more than anything else are God, the Holy Spirit, and mom and dad. And and the Word of God. Scriptures. That doesn't mean that they don't have YouTube. It doesn't mean that they're never on YouTube. But it means that, that, that there are restrictions around it. It means that the kids in our home, they don't go to bed with their phones. Their phones aren't allowed to just stay in the room. That doesn't happen. The idea that mom and dad, this is my private conversation. I'm sorry. That doesn't exist in our home. You don't have private conversations with other teens that mom and dad aren't privy to. You don't have that right in this home. These are convictions that affect how we Build as a family, worship God, and what we want to see produced. Amy and I personally, right, as it pertains to TV, people think maybe we're a little nuts for this. But, you know, when you turn on Netflix and Amazon, you know, nowadays, if it has the the rating mature on it, and that mature rating is for nudity, Amy and I, we just don't watch it. It does not get turned on in our house. And the reason being is that there's nothing like nudity and sex on screen to impact your marriage faster than anything else. Now, some people choose to just try to fast forward all that stuff. That's not us. It's just not what we do. If it's rated this for that, it doesn't get watched in our home. And that means there's about a bajillion things that are available to stream that we just don't watch. Or we don't get to watch. And we've made that decision. It's a conviction for us, for our worship and our heart before the Lord, before each other, and what we want to see produced in our home. You've got to decide what your convictions are as it pertains to things like media. Maybe it's alcohol for you, right? Some people have different convictions regarding alcohol. Some people are just anti it completely. That's not me. But you know what? If I'm out in public, you know, I'm okay having a drink, but one and that's it, right? One out, two in, right? That's kind of the the conviction. And if you're sitting and you're like, man, I don't have any convictions. I haven't built any of this in my own life. Well, one of the ways you can do that is by having a relationship with people who live differently than you. And you ask them questions. As much as I'd like to tell you that all the convictions that I have and how we built our life has come purely from reading the Bible, it hasn't. Much of it has come from following the example of other men and women and other people, other families who have gone before us. And when we look at the fruit of their life and the fruit of their kids and the fruit of their marriage and the fruit of their singlehood and the fruit of their job and management and boss and all the things, when I see that which upholds righteousness and honors God, I want to know how they got there, what they did, how they do it. And so I ask these questions. What do you do? How did you create this? What happened? And they'll tell you. Well, this is how we live. And there are things that we've taken and we've literally, it's become our conviction. And then there are other things we're like, we will never do that. That's just not who we are. And you know what? Both are okay. 
but in a world where you are called to live boldly and bravely for God, you have to know your convictions and you have to live by them. And that means you have to have lines that you simply will not cross because of your love for Jesus and what you desire to see him do in your life and in your home. This is where our journey begins as we start this series called Brave. How do you live in a world that doesn't share the same values and love for God as you do? It begins with you knowing your convictions and living by them. Get around people who have them, ask them questions, and open your Bible and see what righteousness really looks like. Run after it. Don't cross that line. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. God, I pray that even as we've watched today, that you would inspire us or to be a people that live for you, that we have convictions, that we have lines that we will not cross out of worship to you and a desire to see righteousness produced in our homes and in our hearts. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to be that kind of people. Help us to live like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here with us. See you next week.